You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst. David, um, how are you? Giles, I'm well. I trust listeners are enjoying uh, listening to the podcast wherever they are. And I'd like to say a very special welcome to our very special guest all the way from Finland today. All the way from Finland, yes. Look, um, Australia's been wrapped up in its own energy politics and its own politics, you know, heading into an election. We kind of forget that um, there are things happening outside, out there in the outside world, um, across the globe, um, big energy transitions and, and talk of it and analysis. And there's been a, a series of analyses which have looked at how quickly the world can um, transition to clean energy, um, not just electricity grids, but also transport and heating and manufacturing. One of the interesting ones came out this week and it came from Lutt University and the German-based uh, energy um in, um, Energy Watch group, and um, the lead author of this very detailed report is Christian Breyer, who is um, a professor at Lut uh, University, um, all the way from Finland. Um, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Yeah, many thanks. It's a great pleasure uh, to have with you a discussion on our latest results. First question I've got to ask is that um, I think you're described as a professor of the solar of solar economy. Um, please tell us what that means. It's, it sounds like something we should have in Australia, but um, I don't think we do. <laughs> yeah, and practically I'm located in the middle of forest in the very northern country, Finland. Um, but of course, solar economy is in a more broader sense to be understood. Finally, all the energy what we get from the sun. And this is, of course, directly solar irradiation. By the way, in the summer, you can have a solar system in Finland, in the north of Finland, which works 24-7 due to the fact the sun is not uh, disappearing if there are no clouds. So from that point of view, sun is great in Finland, uh, but maybe not in the winter. Uh, but uh, coming back to the definition of solar economy, so what we get indirectly from the sun, of course, is in addition, for example, wind energy, bioenergy. So we get in the very end almost everything from the sun. Maybe in addition, it will be only geothermal energy. So the rest is from the sun. So from physical point of view, solar uh, makes a lot of sense. And economy is in the very end, if it doesn't matter uh, from an economic point of view. So if we would not have advantages if we did not, would not have special benefits to have an all renewable energy system we would not go for it if it would be incredible expensive but luckily nowadays uh, solar energy in particular solar photovoltaics is in almost all places in the world the least cost source of electricity mm -hmm. so economy matters <laughs> And that's the main finding of this report. And maybe you, I just get you to sort of go over this report um, that was released um, this week. And two things there. One, you actually predict that solar will become the dominant form of um, energy in the world, um, around about 70%. And you may want to correct me on that number if I've got it wrong. But more importantly, you find that by 2050, what can happen is that we can basically electrify everything. And that includes heating and transport and manufacturing, not quite everything, but as near as them at 90%. And then this would require um, an enormous amount of new um, installations, solar and wind. 
um, and you can probably go into the details there, but you actually make the point that it's actually cheaper at the end. And the reason why you've done this, I understand, is that you're wondering, well, how can we actually get to the Paris climate target, which is an aspirational target of capping global average global warming by one to 1.5 degrees. So maybe you can just walk us a little bit through the headlines of what you found, and I'm sure David and myself would be keen to go into some of the details. Yeah, sure. Please challenge me with all the details. No, the key finding is, or the key assumption is, we want to have an all-sustainable energy system which is fully in line with the Paris Agreement, number one, and number two, which also supports the sustainable development goals of United Nations. And this implies that everyone on the planet gets access to all energy services which is needed for a progressive development of all humans in the world. So this is number one. And this has a consequence that all, I would say, drastic sufficiency ideas will not help. Because we know that we can only rebalance with the limits of our planet if we get the population growth managed. And for the population growth, people have to get richer. This is what we observe all over the world. If we have stable societies with a good level of, how to say, economic development, then the education system catches up, the health system is good enough, typically the overall societal stability is good enough, and then um, population growth goes down. And that is the pre-assumption uh, of everything that we can rebalance with our, within our planet. If we would have unlimited exponential population growth, we would be lost. So this is number one. And then, of course, is the question how such a society can be based on energy. It has to be sustainable. So fossil fuels are simply not allowed. Uh, the last two, three decades, we had these strange ideas of carbon capture and storage, fossil carbon capture and storage. Uh, but in the end, it had been found out it's incredibly expensive. This is problem number one. Problem number two, it captures only 80 to 90 percent of the CO2. Uh, the 1.5 degrees Celsius report of IPCC last autumn told us we have even to go for a net negative emission world in the second half of the century, so 80-90% efficiency is simply not good enough. Uh, and, of course, all the other emissions, in particular, think on mercury, on lead, and, and cadmium, so all these heavy metal emissions are still there. And it's only applicable, uh, applicable for point sources, so it's no help at all for, for example, fossil fuel use in the transport sector. Uh, so all in all, these are dead-end roads, and the better we realize that as a society, the better. Uh, the earlier we realize that, the better. And then it's the question, what is remaining? So the remaining are the renewables. And then we come to the point that we have plenty of wind resources and solar resources all over the world. However, they are variable. So the sun is not always shining and the wind is not always blowing when we wish it and we, when, when we need the electricity for running our energy systems. Uh, and due to that, we have decided to run our energy transition modeling on a full hourly resolution. So every hour of a single year is modeled. Uh, we use real weather years, so no synthetic data, so real, real weather conditions would really happen. The input data is in a 50 kilometer resolution, full hourly, so that makes it, I would say, sufficient enough that the data quality is good enough. Then the world we have structured in 145 regions. 
So Australia, for example, are two regions. Smaller country like Finland is one region. Larger countries like, let's say, India have 10 regions, just to roughly represent population and area. And then we can run this energy transition over all energy sectors uh, from now to 2050 on a full hourly resolution cost. We don't want to have any compromises uh, that the energy system would be not stable. So we have real load curves, one hourly resolved. Uh, and then you can describe on a cost optimized uh, optimization, by the way, so that on a cost optimized pathway, how we can transition to a fully energy system. Um, when it comes then to the electrification, uh, maybe just going back one step back to, to physics. If you start with electricity, this is poor exergy, as physicists call it. So this is the pure form of energy and that can be converted in all other forms of energy. So due to that, it's not surprising that, for example, using heat pumps, we can confirm, uh, convert it to heat we need for space heating in buildings. If we use modern power to X technologies, it's called, so then we can convert it uh, with the help, let's say, of CO2. We can even capture from the atmosphere again and water. We can convert electricity into fuels. Fuels we can use in a jet uh, turbine of a plane and then we use it as jet fuel. So from that point of view, there is not a single end-use form of energy um, left which can be not finally based on electricity from a technical point of view. Of course, we have then to find the economic ways to really get it done that it really makes economically sense. So it interests me, Christian, uh, this study that you describe, hourly model using global data, uh, basically is just scaling up in one sense studies that I think a number of organisations have done of a, a region. So for instance, there's quite a few studies now in Australia of 100% electricity at least, uh, without doing the uh, other sectors. But of course, as you say, it can all be done. But they don't come to the same answer as to the fuel mix. For instance, the studies done in Australia often find that there's a lot of wind uh, and relatively only say 20% solar. And so I guess uh, it comes down to, in a sense to the assumptions that you make about the technology costs. Uh, I, I doubt if you've done so much wind correlation as to if you only divide Australia, for instance, into two regions to, to I mean, it's, it's, it's a certain conceptual element to it as opposed to uh, the actual uh, complete optimization of every 50 of every region within within your global model. Um, thanks for the question. First of all, we we go there in more detail practically. So the input data is in a 50 kilometer resolution and the 50 kilometer resolution is then aggregated on the regional level uh, of all our regions. So for the case of Australia, it's two regions, it's the western and the eastern part. Um, but the, the information of this 50 kilometer resolution is still there. We only aggregate it on a, on a regional level uh, while we not destroy at all the hourly resolution. Um, so I would say the, the, the resource data is well represented. And of course we do the same with solar. And then it's more a question of the, and, and, and by the way, we have an algorithm that we don't do an average of what is the resource quality per region, 
but we prefer the best sites, which of course reflects reality, that in the best sites, in particular if it's a bit closer to infrastructure, uh, for example, wind power plants are built first. So we aggregate the, the best 10% of the regions with a higher probability than for example, the 40 to 50% best uh, sites and the second half of the sites, so how to say the not that perfect half uh, of all sites, we do not take into account at all. And that uh, allows the algorithm to place in particular wind in the better uh, sites. Um, so this is how we spatially aggregate it and then from the temporal resolution it's still full hourly and then in the end it's a question of the relative cost. So what is the cost of wind, what is the cost of solar? We have also a photovoltaic prosumer function which by the way for Australia is is the perfect place to have uh, <laughs> indeed, behind indeed, the yes. meter solar. Um, similar as for example in Germany or in California, Hawaii nowadays, so these are all the hot spots of PV prosumers um, but this is of course also taken into account and then it's more a question of economic optimization and what we observe but this is more or less around the globe that from now to 2030 wind as and solar have a very strong growth so for the next let's say 15 20 years however then we observe that wind is in most places still replaced uh, when we have a kind of a repowering at the end of the technical lifetime not in all but in most uh, but additional growth is mainly taken up by solar and this has to do with relative cost not only of solar photovoltaics which is assumed to further decline we're still a bit conservative in the cost decline but still of course there is further decline in cost in future and in particularly solar benefits from a further cost uh, decline of batteries because batteries lift uh, solar electricity over the day-night cycle. This is what I found really interesting was the amount of storage that you thought would come from batteries rather than pumped hydro. Um, I think energy storage around the world now is absolutely dominated by pumped hydro and batteries only just moving into it and we've seen what we call the Tesla big battery in Australia which is the biggest lithium ion battery in the world but really at 129 megawatt hours it's really quite a small beans for what will come. But um, so tell me about your sort of um, your, your cost estimates there. I'm fascinated to know um, how and why batteries would become the dominant form of storage? Mm -hmm. um, first of all, I would not argue against uh, pumped hydro energy storage, and we know in particular uh, from my very excellent colleague Andrew Blakers that Australia is nowadays a hotspot of global pumped hydro energy potential research. Indeed and, it is. And of course that is very important, and, and in, in, in the end we will see both. Uh, however, the pumped hydro energy storage is more linked to uh, topography, so we need the upper and the lower uh, reservoir uh, without any doubt, and it's a technology which is more on the utility side, um, so it is on the transmission grid. Uh, located. The batteries are fully flexible, so the batteries can be placed on the transmission grid side where we have wind parks, where we have solar parks, they can be located at the distribution grid side where we have prosumers for example. Um, pumped hydro energy storage again are typically for larger storage volumes 
uh, due to economies of scale and infrastructure requirements, batteries are more or less independently scalable. So you can start with a 5 kilowatt hour battery and you can end up with several gigawatt hours of huge scale batteries. All is possible. It's very similar to solar. You can have uh, on your balcony three photovoltaic modules and you can build uh, one gigawatt uh, um, photovoltaic power plant. So from that point of view, uh, it's it's scalable. The same is scalable with batteries. Um, however, we have to be very careful with batteries. So currently the cost trend is excellent. So the learning rate is around 15%. The growth rate is maybe 70 to 100%. That means the cost can come down by more than 10% per year, maybe even 15%. Uh, of course, also depending on the industrial capacity development. So if we have industrial overcapacities, the cost will crash. If there is a shortage in industrial manufacturing capacity, it is the cost may stay stable that we know for the last 10-15 years also for solar photovoltaics I think it's very similar however there is one main difference and this is the lithium uh, the raw materials uh, part of batteries because most batteries used today are lithium-ion batteries in principle it could be many different types of chemistries and I'm sure we will see in future also other types of chemistries but currently what is large-scale available are lithium-ion batteries um, currently lithium supply is okay, uh, but the main lithium supply will be in future for electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles, and currently it's not yet really clear whether we have enough affordable lithium to power all these electric vehicles. Affordable means uh, it need to be from salt lakes and mines. We have huge amounts... It's, it's, not, it's not just lithium, it's also cobalt, nickel, uh, all the, um, uh, if you imagine vast expansion uh, of electrification of industrial processes, there's probably a lot of uh, copper involved as well. Uh, there's all the graphite, which is relatively plentiful. There's quite, for an Australian, uh, which is used to talking resources, even in our sleep, uh, this is all sort of, in, you know, lithium makes up 3% of the world's crust, I think, but uh, uh, um, uh, at the same time, getting it out commercially is, at the moment is, is quite difficult. I, I also, um, I guess, been somewhat conservative, wonder about how much more progress there's going to be in uh, solar cost down. I think solar panels are now running at 23% and the absolute limit, uh, as, as I'm told at the moment, is something like 29% or something, I, you can correct me. Uh, Christian, if I have that wrong, uh, and and also the learning rate, which depends on you know the unit cost coming down fifteen to twenty percent for every doubling of cumulative production. I mean, the cumulative production doubling that cumulative production is going to get quite tough <laughs> if growth continues at this current rate for much longer, uh, which in turn will mean the cost reductions will become tougher as well. So. So these are just things that we have to face in the decarbonisation challenge, uh, I, I believe. Yeah, m many thanks for raising all the questions. So I will go through them step by step. Let's start again with, with the lithium case. Of course, you're right. There are more raw materials involved, but lithium is the only what is really critical. I fully agree for the vehicles. Cobalt is a challenge right now. 
but there are major research uh, attempts, and I think they are more than successful, that we can get rid of cobalt at all. Um, so otherwise cobalt will be the more limiting factor, I agree. Uh, and cobalt's not a very nice material no. either. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, yeah, fully agree. Um, so from that point of view, um, lithium is still a kind of a bottleneck. And of course, we have huge amounts of lithium in the oceans, but currently it's energetically too expensive to get it extracted. Um, so due to that, we are a bit more limited. When it comes to copper, uh, the main demands of copper might be substituted with aluminium. Uh, in different applications, in particular for power lines, aluminium is based on bauxite, which is practically unlimited, so I would be not so worried on, on copper, in particular not copper for batteries. Um, nickel, let's see, I uh, would be not so worried. Graphite should be not a big deal, because this is finally carbon. We have huge amounts of carbon. Um, so, all in all, let's see, but still, it's not that easy going. I, I fully agree. Now let's come back to, to, to photovoltaics. Uh, so first of all, what we saw in the last 10 years is the learning rate of photovoltaic modules is 40% um, or 39%, which is the current number for the last 10 years. So this is extreme steep decline, but this is not so super surprising because this is as is the normal learning rate of semiconductor products. So computer chips, DRAMs, flat panels, they have all around 40% learning rate. Uh, whether this can continue for many decades, I would have also my doubts. So for our cost projections, we have a, a, a doubling, which is not that super huge. So we assume for just for the cost approximation, uh, installed capacity in 2050 around 20,000 gigawatts, which is one third of what is the outcome of our current study. Uh, so to be a bit more on the conservative side, but honestly, one third means one and a half doublings roughly or 1.3 doublings um, less. Um, and from the learning rate, we, we have a different learning rate for the model, for the inverter and then for all balance of system components to better reflect uh, what drives the cost there. So I would say we're rather on a conservative side. Uh, practically, I give you an example. Uh, our cost assumption for photovoltaic power plants we have in our model for the published report for 2030 is today's reality in India and even in most uh, competitive markets in Europe. So from that point of view, we are already 10 years in delay um, in, in, in the report compared to the competitive markets in the world. So I would say this is well conservative, maybe too conservative from that point of view. Uh, when it comes to the future cost reduction, Let's see. So the overall limitation, by the way, it's only for uh, so-called single junction solar cell, uh, 29%. The overall photovoltaic conversion uh, efficiency limit is 80%. So this is the real physics. Uh, then, of course, we have to go to so-called uh, tandem structures, triple junction, fourth junction structures, and so on, which is, by the way, all developed. So. Uh, my my colleague Martin Green in Sydney is maybe a hero of of the discipline going for all or many of these new concepts. Um, but what is currently under under fundamental and very massive and also industrially applied research is to go for tandem structure with uh, crystalline photovoltaics as the basis and then perovskites. Um, as a second absorption layer on top, and there the theoretical limit is closer to 40%. Uh, so from that point of view, I will be not so much worried, 
uh, when it comes to the future merits uh, of photovoltaic. And you, you know, in the end, the conversion efficiency is only one factor. What is the always dominating factor is um, the cost of electricity generation. And for all what is direct electricity, what we use in the today's power sector on rooftops and power plants, it's already today more than competitive. However, we need a lower cost level in future to go for synthetic fuels or synthetic chemicals, for example. There we have to further reduce the cost. I'm going to hand back to Giles in just a second, and I feel like I'm hogging the conversation, and that's great. And uh, Martin Green said much the same thing as you just said at a seminar I attended recently. Uh, but I want to switch away from the study directly, or at least the, the technical side of it, and ask, uh, you know, even in Europe, uh, I don't, which has led the energy vendor, uh, there still seems to be, uh, you know, if you go to Poland or Eastern Europe or uh, not everyone is convinced that this is still the way to go. There are still like political difficulties. I'm just wondering how you are feeling about the uh, balance of power, the balance of political forces at the moment as to how strong the drive is uh, generally to, to across Europe to, to move in this direction from, from where you sit. Maybe let's put it into two pieces. So first of all, policy should reflect what is the direction of society, uh, in, in particular in democracies. Uh, and what we can currently observe is that the young generation stands up and tells the, currently, the current generation in force that they dramatically failed with their key target of their lives. And the key target should be to have a sustainable world which is worth living for the next generation. And our current generation, the people in force, dramatically failed. We talked in three decades and have not much progress. And this is what the Friday school strikers tell us all over the world, uh, that uh, all decision makers have to perform much, much better. And from that point of view, I would assume that uh, political leaders have to go on a good performance or in the end they're fired from the young generation in the one or other way. And I think that can be already observed in several countries that the tone in the political field changes dramatically. Of course, there is no argumentation against the young generation. They have all arguments on their side and that makes it so powerful. Um, this is the one aspect. The other aspect is that in almost all countries I know, um, it is the clear target that low energy prices, low energy cost is important uh, for societal balance and in particular for economic development, in particular for industry and energy intensive industry. However, the point is nowadays that the least cost source of energy is based on renewable electricity. So from that point of view, it's an economic rationale uh, in the policy field to transition the energetic base on a, low, on a continued low-cost basis, and this is nowadays renewables. And you mentioned Poland. Not by accident, uh, the largest utility in Poland decided a few months ago they will not continue with nuclear power plant plants, but they will develop several gigawatts of wind energy, and the simple reason is it's lower end cost. Hmm. I was going to ask about nuclear, actually, because um, one of the few nuclear plants being built in um, Western countries is actually occurring in Finland. Um, what's, what, why, why does nuclear not play a role in your decarbonisation plans? Is it simply because of cost? 
Um, it has two main reasons. The one reason is we want to have a cost-optimized energy transition and nuclear simply is much too expensive. So we know from Hinkley Point C in the UK uh, where a feed-in tariff for nuclear is introduced and is higher than 100 euros uh, per megawatt hour. So it's incredibly expensive. There is not a single country in the world where a 100% renewable energy system would cost more than 100 euros per megawatt hour. So it's simply not competitive. So we even published a study early this year uh, telling the story that even paying for the power line and having 100% renewables uh, from Scotland, which is mainly wind-based in Scotland, uh, and for the base load condition, which is not realistic, but anyway, for the base load condition as Hinkley Point C could produce, uh, the cost in Scotland, including the power line and all balancing with storage for base load cost less than Hinkley Point C. So there is not any more an economic rationale uh, to go for it. Uh, so this is... I, I, I would just say on that, I would just say, sorry to interrupt, uh, that, 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 you know, when I talk to my friends here at the Nuclear Institute, they would say that if you look at China, uh, where nuclear energy is still, is actually the fastest growing form of electricity at the moment, that they can build nuclear plants and have built them in 60 weeks. And, you know, there's a, probably a learning rate in that as well. I'm not defending nuclear. I'm just making an observation that Hinkley, uh, Hinkley and Finland uh, contrast very strongly with the experience in China. When it comes to China, I would recommend to really check the statistics. The statistics tell that wind and solar is growing fast, not nuclear in China. And if you look what have been the new reactor starts uh, in the last one, two years, then you see there is a decline. So wind and solar are simply lower in cost also in China. And you can find from national institutes in China that they have a renewable energy target, which is close to 100% in 2050. Nuclear does not play a major role there, um, at least for the development in the decades to, to come. And when it comes to the learning rates, honestly, what we had observed in all main uh, nuclear countries in the world that the learning rate is negative. Negative means every new generation costs more than the previous generation. And this has to do with security standards. I'm not sure about the details of security standards in China, but this is a rule which had been found uh, in, 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 in all uh, nuclear countries in the world so far that the new generation costs more than the previous one. Let's, let's... If, they, if you know the security standards in China, they'll probably never let you out of the country. Sorry, back to you, Charles. <laughs> That's a fair point. And I do remember talking to the head of GE once, and um, he said um, they used to be in it. I don't even know if they're still in the nuclear industry now, but um, they said they felt a lot happier when the um, safety standards were being set by America when they dominated the industry, which they no longer do. I do want to get back to this um, cost, um, though, of renewables. You, you sort of said that, um, or you did say quite clearly, that um, it's now quite clear that um, renewables renewables um, do present the least cost um, choice of energy. Um, that seems to be pretty clear in um, Australia as well. However, we do have an incumbent government and conservatives and some vested interests still who insist that's not the case. Um, what, what do you sort of see um, across the world and maybe in Europe about this discussion? And exactly how cheap does renewables have to get before even the conservatives admit it's cheaper than what we get now? I would recommend that uh, people, decision makers who have not yet realized the huge potential of renewables, that they face the real facts. So what are the full cost of conventional options, whether it's oil 
gas, coal-based, uh, and what are the cost of renewables. You find in so many different sources that renewables are much more competitive. Just take uh, the, the annual publication of Lassard, which is very well perceived, in particular in, uh, in the US. It's absolutely clear the two least cost sources are wind and solar in the US, and then it's gas, and then it's that's it. Uh, and when it comes to gas, we have to be very careful. Uh, gas is only, from my point of view, as a transition fuel, acceptable if there is a leakage of zero. And the point is that the global warming potential of a single methane molecule is on the short term, short term means still 10-20 years, uh, by a factor of 100 more uh, global warming effective than a CO2 molecule and only the 30 year uh, the 100 years average is a factor of 30 so from that point of view whenever there is a leakage of methane this technology is worse uh, than uh, lignite coal so from that point of view we have to be very careful when it comes to gas and my clear recommendation will be we need extremely tough monitoring systems that the entire value chain of methane there is not a single leakage because if there is a leakage we have to really discuss when uh, such a high risk technology from climate change perspective has to be phased out of uh, course, this acceleration of climate change is not acceptable at all, and the and the fundamental reason is methane is currently the fastest growing uh, greenhouse gas we have at all, and this is monitored just uh, in the atmosphere, and we have to be very careful on that. Uh, when it comes back to to, uh, to to your initial question, I think just let's the number calculated and by the way uh, one should have a kind of a social costing which should take into account also heavy metal emissions which is in particular the case when we come to uh, to coal uh, and also other forms of air pollution when we come for example to the traffic uh, to the to the transportation sector um, all these emissions from combustion vehicles cars buses trucks uh, just look into many discussions what we have in cities. The combustion engine is really at its end. Absolutely. Well, they kill more people than car accidents. I think it's pretty clear at the moment. Just to wind up the discussion, um, given um, you, you've given a very compelling vision of how this transition can be effected and on the costs and the sort of technology abilities and things like that, but given everything else that's sort of lined up against it and given the slowness sometimes of political will, are you hopeful that we can actually sort of achieve this outcome? Yeah, that's challenging. So honestly, when the political will is based on excellent economics, then it should be proven that the transition should be already on full pace. Honestly, we should be not so so pessimistic, because taking the statistics from last year, 70% of all global new capacities in the power sector have been renewables. So from that point of view, the transition is ongoing and it's, it's, it's accelerating. So we are on a not bad pathway, but of course we have to substitute the existing system, uh, which takes some time. Uh, but then I'm really grateful that the Fridays for School strikers uh, school strikers really stand up and put massive pressure in the system 
and that is a movement we see all over the world uh, and it will it it will get stronger i'm very sure we will see more of those events during the year and i think that is really needed and i of course you mentioned in the earlier question vested interests they're massive that's a problem i agree However, I even heard politicians saying we need the pressure from the streets that we can overcome the enormous lobbying power and the vested interests. So politicians, of course, would know what is the better decision making, but then they have to fight against uh, strong vested interests and lobbying pressure. And there the power from the street is absolutely needed to go for fast and right decision making in our report we have shown in principle it's possible and the key bottleneck is political willingness to go for it mm. we're, we're finding that here in australia um christian Breyer, um from lut university in finland thank you very much for a um a, a fascinating explanation of your report many thanks you're welcome mm. and thanks and thanks for me as well and just on the vested interests i'd note that the uh annual value at, at the production level of oil, gas and coal is probably about 3,500 billion per year. So this is why I think from an economist's point of view, uh, the transition which we have to have and have to have quickly will be the most important and interesting thing that any economist will work in over the next 20 years. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. Look, David, on that note, um, I think we've been going long enough. We might save some of our other topics until next week, if that's okay with you. Um, we just had a couple of things to, to talk about, but I think we might just leave them for next week. And I'd just like to take the chance to um, thank our sponsors, um, Solaray Energy and Watchers, for their ongoing support. And um, once again, thank our guest, Christian Breyer from Lut University. Um, if you haven't seen the report, we do write about it on our website and we provide links to the original report, which is incredibly detailed. Um, some 300 or 400 pages, the work of 14 scientists over four and a half years. So um, it is quite a substantial work. And um, David, once again, thank you very much for your time. And uh, uh, Yeah, look, I look forward to it. it's Easter next week. Uh, the podcast will probably be done in between uh, bits and pieces of surfing up at Byron Bay and the Blues Fest. But hey, there's got to be worse things in And life. Bob, Bob Brown's um, cavalcade or um, convoy against Adani. So we might even get down there and have a word to Bob. Who knows? Okay. Thanks very much, Christian. Thanks very much, David. Thanks very much, listeners. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.